And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. Today is the first Sunday after Easter. The quiet reflection that is the traditional purpose of Lent is over for another year. The solemnity of Good Friday as we evoked the agonized pain of Christ's crucifixion and death is once again a memory, as is the pomp and circumstance of Easter Sunday as we celebrated our Lord's resurrection. More often than not, it is a Sunday in which church attendance is low. And that is a shame, because it's the Sunday on which we pay particular attention to the accounts of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. And they are important, because they give us insight into what will be the basic tenets of the new covenant between God and humankind, which has been brought about through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it has been noted that there are two ways in which you can study the Bible. You can study it with your mind made up and uh, search for the, the verses that bolster your opinion, or you can study it to let it make up your mind. Clearly, the second results in more insight and greater growth as we allow the Bible's wisdom to give and govern our thoughts and guide our actions. Now, I'm not suggesting for one second that we adopt any kind of biblical literalism or that we make a practice of isolating particular verses yanking them out of their context and using them to bolster our individual opinions. Rather, I found it helpful to use the Wellesleyan method of interpretation, which means reading and studying scripture through the lenses of tradition, reason, which includes context, and experience. So, Tradition, because you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Reason, using your minds, they are God-given. And experience, what you have experienced of God's presence in your life. I found that using this method can and will stop us from jumping to hasty and incorrect assumptions about any particular verse or passage, and that in turn enables us, among other things, to get to know the individuals that we meet in the biblical accounts as genuine flesh and blood people. People, although they lived and, and, lived and breathed over two millennia ago in time and in a culture vastly different from our own, experience life on this planet in much the same way as we do, as an often convoluted and always complex mixture of joy and sorrow, love and hatred, calm and clamor, 
growth and stagnation. Peter is surely one of those people. And we can learn much both from him and through him about what it means to live as a fallible human being in the presence of Christ. Now, just as we begin, it's important to note that Peter's name is rendered Petros in Greek, the literal meaning of which is rock, for there will be word plays on the meaning of this name throughout Scripture. We are first introduced to Peter as Jesus challenges him, along with his brother Andrew and two other fishermen, James and John, to leave their jobs as fishermen and join him in his, at this point, fledgling ministry. Did they know him already? Oh, I think so. Matthew tells us that Jesus had been living in their hometown of Capernaum for some time and had already begun his preaching and teaching ministry there, declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Nonetheless, the invitation to leave behind a secure and settled lifestyle for the uncertain demands of an itinerant ministry was one of epic proportions. And the immediacy with which these men responded can and must be seen as a tribute to their willingness to trust and to Jesus' ability to engender that trust. Certainly, Peter demonstrated the strength of his confidence in Jesus' power when he entrusted his deathly ill mother-in-law to Jesus' care, choosing to believe that Jesus could and would heal her, which in fact he did, so much so that she was able to serve them all dinner that very day. Not all that long afterward, Peter would reveal his now legendary impetuosity, along with his tremendous courage, when he obeyed Jesus' command to walk with him on the storm-tossed Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty certain that if I were put in that position, I'd be joining the other disciples cowering in the back of the boat, frightened out of my wits. When and if I'm asked to walk on water, I want it to be very solidly frozen. Thank you very much. Plainly, the two men enjoyed a strong relationship built with the bricks of loyalty, trust, respect, and love. So much so that it was Peter who first recognized and declared that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, while Jesus' response eloquently illustrates just how highly he, in his turn, valued Peter. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Yet within minutes, a dispute developed which threatened to disrupt, if not destroy, the relationship between Jesus and Peter, 
For as Jesus began to describe the suffering and the sorrow that lay ahead of him, Peter interrupted him and taking him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must not happen to you. To which Jesus replied, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block, a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. No doubt, both Peter and Jesus were thoroughly distressed by the heat of the exchange, yet love and loyalty triumphed and their relationship continued as strong as ever, perhaps even strengthened by the fires of dissension. Indeed, Peter continued to be a loyal and trustworthy friend and companion as opposition to Jesus' ministry increased, stood firmly by his side during that last week in Jerusalem when Jesus was under constant attack by the Pharisees and Sadducees, remained strong until that last night when overcome by fear, Peter deserted Jesus declaring not once, not twice, but three times that he had never known him. Ray Kostulias, in his book, Character Witnesses, dramatically portrays Peter's pain. At that moment, the clock, the cock crowed, but I didn't need to hear it. I knew what I had done. In my mind, I saw my Lord's face. The love was still there, but now it was mixed with a terrible sadness. He had known this would happen. He had told me what I would do in this moment of crisis. Simon Peter, the one who had boasted of his unshakable decision devotion, Simon Peter, the rock, had crumbled to worthless dust. Dawn was breaking, and so was my heart. I turned and fled. I ran as fast as I could, tears streaming down my face. I escaped the guards, but I could not escape myself. <clears throat> I ran until I could no longer breathe and fell to the ground, choking, drowning in self-loathing and utter despair. I had been with him in everything, everything except his death. And now it was my own death that I wished for. James and John found me and brought me back to the upper room where the others had gathered." End of quote. Can you even begin to imagine what the news of the resurrection must have meant to Peter? What it meant, must have meant to hear Jesus even speak his name? Surely, 
there would have been joy. Pure, unadulterated, unquenchable joy. Yet, I do not believe that Peter would truly emerge from his prison of guilt and despair until that day on the beach that we read about earlier, when Jesus, reaching out in forgiveness, gave Peter the opportunity to declare his love, not once, not twice, but three times. And in doing so, reaffirmed his trust in Peter, the rock, by commissioning him to carry the message of his own redeeming love to a worn and worried world. Ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven, as he knew himself to be. Peter responded with heartfelt dedication, becoming a leader in the early church. And there is something infinitely satisfying to me in knowing that it was Peter, Jesus' fallible friend, that God entrusted the good news that salvation in Christ was God's gracious gift to the whole world, to everyone, whatever their background, whatever their lineage. For God knew that Peter could be trusted to honor that vision, whatever the cost. For such is the power of forgiveness. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 11. Yet, to, believe, to leave it there is to tell only half the story. For as surely as Peter was thrown into an emotional and spiritual prison whose walls were built of guilt and despair. So we, who have been betrayed and hurt, can languish in a similar prison. Only this time, the walls will be built of sorrow, anger, bitterness, and distrust. The difference is that our release is dependent solely on ourselves. For the key to our prison's doors lies in our willingness to follow Christ's example and forgive. David Oxberger, professor of pastoral counseling at Fuller Theological Seminary, states that true forgiveness is the hardest thing in the universe. I agree. Alexander Pope's contention that to err is human, to forgive divine, contains a strong element of truth. However, in my view, the alternative, clinging to past hurts, is far worse. For its impact on our mental, emotional, spiritual, and yes, even physical well-being can be, and often is, enormous. When someone hurts us, we experience that hurt as a violation of our trust, 
as a violation of our sense of right and wrong. And we tend to react in two ways. First, we withdraw. If not physically, then mentally and emotionally. Simon and Garfunkel captured the essence of this response in their song, I Am a Rock. Listen to the lyrics of the second and third verses. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Don't talk of love, but I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I'd never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Along with that withdrawal, we all too often find ourselves constantly returning to the memory of whatever has happened. Lying sleepless in bed, we replay the incident over and over and over again in our minds, tossing and turning in an effort to break the chains that bind us to it. Have you ever had a filling fall out of a tooth, exposing the nerve? You just can't keep your tongue from poking away at it. Emotionally, a hurt is like that. The problem is that as we repeatedly re-experience the pain, the humiliation, the loss, the twin poisons of resentment and rancor slowly eat away at us consuming every thought and emotion until only rank bitterness remains, diminishing and sometimes destroying our ability to experience either peace or joy in the present or in the future. In our heart of hearts, we know this and may well try other means of breaking the bars of our prisons. Denial is a favorite one. Mantras like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me are common. So are repression and rationalization. Oh, just get over it, we tell ourselves. The sad truth is they don't work. The sorrow, the sadness, the anger, the hatred, the bitterness will continue to bubble away inside of us, boiling over into our nightmares and more often than not into our relationships with other people. All this is what we invite on ourselves when we refuse to undertake the admittedly hard work of forgiveness. How much better, how much healthier in every sense of the word it is to forgive 
and it is to do so whether or not the offender displays any remorse or even any awareness of how they have hurt us. Remember Jesus' words on the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. True forgiveness has three components. First, we must stop trying to run away from the pain and allow ourselves to fully experience the hurt, the sadness, and the anger. Acknowledging our emotions without shame or guilt, shedding the tears that have been stopped up inside of us, for they are healing tears. God's way of cleansing the wound. Second, in cases that do not involve physical abuse or altercations, and please hear that, we must try to form a clear and accurate account of what really happened. Seeking out the help of another person can be very, very helpful with this component of forgiveness for our past experiences, our unrealized assumptions, and sometimes our own defensive posture can cloud our vision and give us a distorted picture of what really occurred. Now, let me emphasize that this is not an exercise in rationalization. Rather, it is an acknowledgement of our fallibility, and above all must be born of a desire to understand what really happened. More than one person has discovered that they truly have misread the situation, and that better communication rather than forgiveness, is what is required. Ellen Greenspan, the noted American economist, captured the essence of this phenomena when he said, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realized that what you heard is not what I meant. Want to get that again? I know, you under, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. Finally, with a clear and accurate picture of what that offense was and of what that offense has cost us, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and materially, we can, by an, ex an exercise of the will, choose to forgive. Choose to give up our bitterness and our anger. Choose to renounce our right to retaliate. Choose to wish the offender well. Now, there is an important caveat in this, and I want to make this crystal clear. Forgiveness does not mean, emphatically does not mean, 
that the relationship can or even should continue. The purpose is to free ourselves from the mental and emotional prisons of anger, bitterness, and hurt, and to give up any thought of revenge. It is not an invitation to allow the offender, the abuser, to repeat their sin. No man, woman, or child should ever be asked to remain in an abusive relationship in the name of forgiveness. To do so is to make a mockery of the whole concept of forgiveness, declaring in effect that the forgiveness was not necessary. Will we need to carry out this act of forgiveness only once? Probably not. For forgiveness does not produce amnesia. And you may well find that from time to time, the toxic residue of our anger and our bitterness will bubble to the surface. The good news is that each time we declare our willingness to forgive, more of these toxic emotions are neutralized until the day arrives when we can recall the incident with regret, but without bitterness or anger, without any desire to avenge ourselves against the offender. It has been my experience that prayer is a mighty tool in this battle, for I have found that as I ask God to help me forgive, and pray for the well-being of the offender, my resistance to forgiving is weakened, transforming the prayers into a source of my own well-being. Only one thing remains to be said. Throughout this whole painful process, there is one thing on which we can rely and that is that Christ will be with us in our struggle to forgive, guiding and guarding us along the way. Nothing can or should be hidden from him, for we know that he understands our every thought, our every feeling, for he has experienced them himself, rejection, betrayal, desertion, lies, libel and slander, the sting of mockery, abandonment, physical, mental and emotional abuse. He was indeed despised and rejected by others, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. My friends, the simple truth is that over the course of our lifetimes, we will sometimes be the victim, but we will also sometimes be the offender, for we are, each and every one of us, fallible followers of Jesus Christ. Let us pray that in the midst of our storm-tossed lives, we will find the courage and the compassion to both seek and offer forgiveness 
for that is God's will for us in Christ. Amen and amen.